Thanks, Lenny. Uh, glad you're here with us again today. Uh, you missed the sort of quasi-debacle that was me leading worship with a keyboard that was running amok <coughs> on Easter Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so thank you for being here with us. It's always, it's always good to have you back. And um, I want to thank Randy and Wayne for stepping in for me last week when I was sick. Uh, there's still something wrong with me. Now, before you want to volunteer, what is wrong with me? Just let me finish my statement here. Uh, I'm still really tired, and my brain is pretty cloudy. So um, if I make up words this morning or, uh, you know, one thing doesn't quite fit with the next, I, I pray that you would have grace on me, uh, your friend, and just, you know, tell me about it later. But it's good to be here together. Uh, because I've been sick the last two weeks, we haven't really been able to put together some of the information and things that we want to give to you, to tell you about some things that are happening. So in the next couple of weeks, be looking for emails, uh, be listening for phone calls. Uh, as we discuss some of the things that we're going to be doing this summer, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and looking forward to having more opportunity to be together and to study God's word and to share food and to do all sorts of things uh, this summer. I am the kind of person that really enjoys putting things together. Um, Legos are super fun. I have a lot of Lego sets still as an adult, and fortunately for me, they make adult Lego sets. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun putting those things together. I always, in a sort of perverse way, enjoyed putting IKEA furniture together. There was, there was something really uh, enjoyable about that. They used to uh, have diagrams and instructions that you would use to put together this furniture. Now they just give you the diagram. So you have to watch these like two cartoon people put these things together and, and interpret what it is that they're doing. But for me, the reason why I like doing those things, and for those of you who know me, you're not going to be surprised by this, there is something really satisfying about taking all of those pieces and putting them together to make something. Now, some people hate this process and get really frustrated about having to go through this, but for me, it is a mind-clearing activity. You know why? Because my friends, I've told you this before, but this is gospel truth. Everything has its place. <laughs> and there is something about taking all those pieces and putting them in their place. So they just go so nicely with everything else. And then when you're done, you have this dresser or coffee table or spaceship or whatever it is that you were putting together at the time. I know it surprises you that I would feel this way about putting things where they belong because I've never shown you any sort of compulsive tendencies at all in all the time that you've known me. But unlike the stereotype of, you know, men don't like directions, uh, I love directions. Directions are wonderful. Uh, the, the thing in front of me is not a puzzle, you see that you have to figure out where things go and just take a guess, you actually have these directions which tell you where, where piece number A123 goes next to B457 and so on and so forth. And so this thing that I am building is designed. It is supposed to be a finished product when I am done with it. And I am given 
all the tools that I need along with directions to accomplish this. So therefore, if I am making a dresser and it turns into a rocking horse, that is my fault that it got there. I mean, you can blame Sweden or whatever all you want, but it's your fault if it doesn't get there in the end. But you know this as well as I do, that the larger or more complicated the thing is, if it has a bunch of, say, moving pieces and whatnots and if there's and for that's, you need to pay even more attention to the directions. Because one small mistake in putting this big thing together can alter the whole thing. So the map that you get is supposed to take you from point A to B. But what happens if somewhere in between A and B you misread a direction? What happens if you accidentally skip a page as you're going through the book? You've all done this before, so you know it's, this, is a, this is a fact of life. When, when I was a youth minister in Arlington, Virginia, I bought a basketball hoop for the youth group, and it was an adjustable one that moves up and down so that we could play basketball down in this, real, this little courtyard. And my brother-in-law, Paul, and I took it upon ourselves to put this thing together. Uh, now, where I follow instructions, Paul is less likely to follow instructions. Um, he's less committed to the idea. But because this was an adjustable basketball hoop, he promised me that he would stick to the directions as far as he uh, could understand them and take them. So we have this gentleman's agreement as we got started. Uh, and things were going great. We were making good time. We were putting things together. I mean, it was taking a couple of hours because these things are pretty big and you have to figure out where everything goes. and. Um, you have to put it together in pieces. So you've got the base, you've got the pole, you have this mechanism that attaches to the pole, which is the arm that moves up and down. Uh, they weren't as easy then as they were now. I don't know if any of you remember this from these old uh, adjustable hoops, but you used to have to take a broom handle and go behind it, and there were two little, I don't know why I'm telling you this. <laughs> I know, remember, it's, it's, it's all happening. Uh, there were two little things, there were two little bars in the back, and you would push on one bar to make it go up and one bar to make it go down. See, you've learned something invaluable here this morning. <clears throat> and then you have the hoop and the backboard. So you have to put all these things together. So we got the base together, uh, we got the pole, we put the mechanism on the pole, we put the pole onto the stand, and it's all laying down at this point, and we go to put the backboard on, and there was a problem the mechanism was backwards. So when you put it, we put it on and then attached everything together, the hoop was facing to the back of the stand, which it's not supposed to do that. It's not supposed to do that. Um, so here's an insider tip for you. If you are putting together a basketball hoop and the hoop is backwards, you did something wrong. Somewhere along there, it's not, it's not meant to go that way. It still looks like a hoop, but it cannot function as such. So at some point, along the lines of us diligently following instructions, putting things together, making fun of one another, and throwing tools at each other, somewhere in that space, we missed something crucial. The mechanism has to be in the right spot. Or what? It's not going to work. So you have to go back then and deconstruct the thing, hoping that you don't lose any pieces along the way 
to turn things around so that it gets back to where it should be. So, Paul started Romans, chapter 12, with an important declaration, which let's look at this again since it's been a couple of weeks. We are at a crucial moment in the book of Romans when we get to chapter 12. Paul has gone to great lengths in the first 11 chapters to put everyone, no matter what their background, uh, their ethnicity, uh, where they came from religiously, all of that stuff didn't matter because they had all come to the same place. Everyone is sinful. Everyone needs a savior. Jesus is that savior, and everyone is saved through faith in him. Therefore, it doesn't matter if you are Jew, if you are Gentile, if you were, if you were raised pagan, if you were raised in a strict Jewish household, everyone is in the same place. Everyone needs Jesus. So he spent all that time trying to get them to understand that. That everyone is in the same place and that everyone needs Jesus. But now in chapter 12, he's having to transition to help them understand what it means to live as a Christian within the world. Because you have to remember, they had no clue how to do that. There was no uh, New Testament they might have had access to different parts of the Old Testament, but most likely not. And so they were very much working things out on the fly about how this works. And had they done a good job in terms of figuring out what it meant to live as a Christian? Well, not really. Because they were still trying to uh, separate based on Gentile or Jewish or you know, what part of society you came from or what your background was. So Paul has to describe to them this thing that they're now putting together, that they're building from the ground up. And the context of, 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 of how they are supposed to live and act and be in the middle of all of this. And in a lot of ways, what Paul tells us here at the beginning of Romans chapter 12 is what the foundation of all of this is. If you are going to build up the church and what the church does and looks like and how people behave and, acts, and act, this is the foundation that everything is built upon. And this foundation has to be strong. It is the theology, the way that we think about God and ourselves, that God, that we are all in need of a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior and that we are saved through faith in him. But now we're going to move up the pole, right? And we're going to get to the complicated moving pieces that will make everything work the way it's supposed to if it is put together the right way. If it's not put together the right way, then it might be facing the wrong direction. And Christian life may not work. So here's what he started chapter 12 with. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Okay, so let's call this 
the pole, <laughs> that the basketball hoop is coming up on, this, that the church is being built up to. And here's his basic premise for this, just to remind you. God's mercy is what makes Christian life what it is. And you cannot live as a Christian without returning your eyes over and over and over again to the mercy of God in your life. You cannot do it. So we need to note here that as he's starting to talk about behaviors, the one thing he doesn't talk about is behaviors. What you should do. Here's how you should act. Since you are all sinners, just stop sinning. Start listening to the right uh, kinds of music on the Roman radio station. You know, start watching the right kinds of things. Start doing all of these things. Instead, he reminds us that it is God's mercy that makes us who we are. And in response to that overwhelming mercy, our only reaction can be to offer ourselves to him. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It is God's mercy that makes us who we are. And so the principle that we took out of these first two verses is this. God before ourselves. When? Always. God before ourselves. Always. When we sacrifice ourselves to God, then, and we put God before ourselves always, we won't need to wonder what it is that God wants us to do in the world. We don't have to guess. God, what do you want for me in this situation? God, what do you want for me in this place? Because if we are viewing God's mercy and we are sacrificing ourselves to him, Paul tells us you will understand what God wants for you in the world. Because, church, if you are living in light of the overwhelming mercy of God, and you are putting God before yourself. God will make what he wants for you known. You are drawing close to him and God is drawing close to you. And you don't have to guess. God wants us to live in this realization of his great love and to have our minds transformed, that we see the world in a different way, and because of this transformation, we'll understand what God's will is. Therefore, God's mercy is the why behind anything you do as a Christian. Why did you give something to someone who is in need? Because of God's mercy to me. Why did you treat someone better than they deserve to be treated? Because of God's mercy to me. Why did you not pick a fight with someone who was ready to pick a fight? Because of God's mercy to me. God's mercy is the why behind everything we do, and it motivates and defines our actions. So now Paul is going to dig a little bit more into the ethic. So this is where he's finally going to start talking about behaviors, right? Because he's talked about all this grace, and now it overcomes all of these things, and he's talked about, and we've been waiting all this time for him to finally give us a list of the things that we should and shouldn't do, because once he gives us that list, then we can apply it to ourselves and to other people. So finally he's going to get there, right? Um, 
Not so much. If you're looking for a set of moral behaviors as God, as Paul starts to describe the ethic, you might be in for a surprise. If being saved by the mercy of God in Jesus is the foundation of the, that the church is built on, then what are the community values? How do, the, how do you begin to live out what this looks like? So Paul does this a big favor here. He, just as he took so much care to lay out how we all need Jesus, he is taking equal care in laying out the ethics for kingdom behavior. He does not throw us in the deep end and say, so be like Jesus, right? He describes to us what it means to be like Jesus. And listen to what he says in verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, friends, this is a sneaky passage right here. It is. Because Paul is saying some things that are really difficult for them to hear, and they kind of have to want to hear it if they're going to get to the heart of what he wants to say. So where does the ethics start? Well, it started with God before self, and now it grows with the way that you think of yourself in relation to people around you. And it's telling, it's telling that within this chapter, Paul spent two verses talking about how we need to view God and ourselves and is now going to spend the rest of it talking about how we view other people and how we view ourselves in light of other people. So in particular, what he says, do not think of yourself more highly than you should. Now, when I hear Paul say this out loud as I read the words to you this morning, it helps me to understand just how worried Paul has been about this particular issue pretty much the whole time. What is the greatest danger to the Roman community living as a Christian community? It's not paganism. It's not Rome. It's not reliance on Jewish tradition. You know what it is? It's pride. Putting themselves first, thinking that they are worth more than the other person. He makes an interesting point here then. He says, when we look at ourselves, what are we supposed to use? What does he say? Sober judgment. All right, friends, what is the opposite of sober? Impaired. Impaired. Intoxicated. Now, is he talking about as literally being drunk on alcohol or some other substance? No. Then what would we be drunk or intoxicated by? Ourselves. Drunk on self-importance. If you are drunk on self-importance and you're thinking of yourself more highly than you should, what you should do is use sober judgment. Use sober judgment so that you look at yourself and you look at God and you look at everyone else with a different view than this self-love that you are carrying around with you. And if you are to step back in sober judgment and look at yourself, what do you see first, according to Romans chapter 12? 
God's mercy for you, a sinner. A savior for you who were helpless and lost. And you take that knowledge of yourself and you begin to apply it to those around you. Sober judgment requires you to look at yourself without all the filters you normally apply to you that you don't apply to other people. All the excuses that you give for yourself to do one thing or another, but that you don't allow for anyone else, those things are removed and you realize you are here because of the mercy of God. And in fact, you're saved through faith in Jesus. Where did you get that faith? Oh, it's from God. So you mean you didn't even generate your own faith? God gave it to you. It was a gift from him that you would know Jesus and, and follow him. So what do you have to brag about? <laughs> what, what do you have to hold to say, like, I'm so much better than that dude over there? When even the faith that you believe in Jesus is a gift that God has given to you. So if you're thinking that you're really better or more deserving than someone else, maybe you want to revisit that idea. Maybe it's time. God before self, others before self. Why is this so important? Because this relationship that you have with God is not only about you. We've covered this before. But we're back again. Because you are a part of something that is bigger than yourself. Let's look at verses 4 through 8. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophecy, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Here's the truth about this. You may very well be different than the person you are sitting next to this morning. And the person that you are sitting next to this morning probably doesn't have all the same gifts or talents or desires that you have. That doesn't make them worse than you. I hate to like, it doesn't make them worse than you. It doesn't. Because God has designed things this way. God has designed things this way. What if you are all different because God wants you to be different and doesn't want you to look the same, talk the same, be the same in every way? What if it's not about what you can do on your own, but about what you can do with that really different person sitting next to you? Mm -hmm. 
You are to use whatever gift you have to strengthen the community. That is why you have that gift. It's not for you. Although you will use it and God will bless you through the using of it. It is for you to use within community. You are to use whatever you have to strengthen the community. And in fact, you could argue that these gifts that Paul talks about, if used for the benefit of the, of the individual, is like putting the hoop on backwards. The gifts themselves are not going to function like they should because they are not putting, being put into the place that they should. And the place where they should be put won't be able to function like it should because they are missing this gift, which is going to help them become what God wants them to be. So principle number one, whatever you, you can... Hold on. This doesn't make sense. Let me look at this real quickly. Okay. Whatever gift you have is given to you by God. You might have spent some time cultivating it or making it more, but it is God working in you that makes this gift happen. So it's not because of your talent or your being special or your being this or that. It is something that God has given to you. You did not create the best version of yourself, no matter what self-help books want to tell you today. God is creating that in you. And he gave you whatever gift you have for a reason. So in view of God's mercy, use sober judgment to look at yourself, renew your mind, and see what your gift is really for. Because principle number two, your gift does not belong to you. It belongs to the community. Huh. That's interesting, isn't it? In fact, you belong to the community. Each member belongs to all the others, Paul says. The Christian faith is essentially a corporate experience. And all each of, although each of us come to faith and understanding of Jesus in different ways, from different places and different backgrounds, the believing community lives out its Christian experience in fellowship with one another. We are stronger together than we are apart. And the gifts that God has given us are to be used for the building up of that community. Therefore, if your gift is to prophesy, then prophesy in the community. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Notice here that Paul is not prioritizing any of these gifts over another. Instead, he is saying that all of us are gifted in unique ways. And the way to use those gifts to fulfill God's purpose is not to make the gift about ourselves. It is to live out the gift in community and to build something that only God can do in us. So principle number three, whatever your gift is, use it to the utmost so that, so that the community of God will be blessed by what God has given you and God will be glorified in the world. God before self, others before self, community before self. 
because you get to be a part of something amazing and good when you use your gifts in God's community. So don't keep it to yourself. That's not what it's for. Instead, use it to its fullest. Give it everything you have. God gave this gift to you, so you offer yourself again and again that he may use you in his kingdom. Okay, he still hasn't told us what to do. Instead, he's told us what this is supposed to look like. And here are the steps you take to start to build what this should be. Number one, you're always in view of God's mercy. God before yourself. Number two, you're not going to fall in love, get into this pattern of self-importance, this intoxicated sense of how good and great you are. Instead, you will look at yourself in sober judgment in light of God's mercy, and you will put others before yourself. Because let me tell you something. There is no one on earth who needed God's grace more than you did. Or I did. And thirdly, you are part of a community that is able to do something more together. So the community is where you get to live out this life that God has called you to. So the pursuit of what it looks like to be a Christian, sadly, is a constant battle against ourselves. And the longer we're at this and trying to live this way, the more we, we may discover the truth that there is actually no room for self within the kingdom of God. So all that talk we may have about our rights or our preferences, what we think should happen or shouldn't happen, or why someone is so wrong and why so-and-so is so... If we boil all that down to its, its essence, we may find that there's no room for any of that within the kingdom of God. It's a big ask. It really is. So what is the key to making this happen? And the answer is a simple one, and it's a simple one that has actually People have poked fun at it a lot over the past three to four years. But the answer is love. Paul's answer to this is love. That God loved you. That you love him. That you love others. That you love your community. That you serve the world. Because you love them. These things that Paul is asking us to do are much harder than some sort of checklist, you see. But listen to what he says, and we're going to look at these words next week. But as we close here this morning, this is now the entire mechanism that's going to make this thing go. Are you ready? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, 
but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If the church looked like this, how could it not change the world? Mm 